Hello, and welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. This is Sarah. Join us for bookish episodes and a monthly book club pick. This is Ashley. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod, or go to our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. This is Jen. Check out our Teachers Pay Teachers store, our Patreon page, and our newsletter. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to support us. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 173. Today, we're going to be talking about John Green's Looking for Alaska. Well, actually, the book to screen adaptation that is now available on Hulu. Today, we're going to be talking about the pilot episode. But before we get started, we wanted to remind you that you should be checking out our website at unabridgedpod.com. And Also, we have some sponsorship opportunities available that you can find if you go to unabridgedpod.com slash partners. And if you're interested, you can always hit us up on social media or you can send us an email and we'd love to partner with you. Before we get started with the discussion of the book to screen adaptation, let's start with our bookish check-in. Ashley, what are you reading? So I'm excited to be reading Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. This one has been on my TBR forever, and it feels like, and I've been wanting to get to it. I've heard such great things, and Jen recommended that to me in our last Recommendations for Each Other episode, and so I had had it on my mind, but hadn't gotten around to it, and I am really enjoying it, and it also is quite fast-moving and compelling right from the start. In this one, the opening scene really grabs your attention because it is Amira, who is in her 20s. I believe she's 26. And she is a routine babysitter of Briar, who is a toddler. And the mom, Alex, calls Amira on a Saturday night pretty late and is frantic. And they've had an emergency at their house. And she really needs Amira to come take Briar somewhere to get her out of the house, even though it's quite late. And so Amira had been at a party. She'd had a couple of drinks, but she got a cab. She went over to help them out and she takes Briar to the the neighboring grocery store because they could just walk around the corner to it. And because that was a good place to just entertain her and walk her around a bit. And people in the grocery store, unbeknownst to Amira, start to pay attention to what's going on and to the fact that Amira is with this toddler and it's quite late at night. There are a lot of judgments being made that seem to be coming from a attitude that is racist because Amira is black and Briar is white and people are drawing all these conclusions. And Amira is in party clothes because again, she had been out on a Saturday night with her friends and then was called in in this emergency situation. So things escalate in a horrifying and it seems ridiculous way. And yet it's totally believable that the people in the grocery store feel totally justified in getting the security officer involved. They won't let Amira leave and just walk back home with Briar. They start accusing her. Things are escalating. She's asking to take the child home. They're saying she can't do that, even though she is clearly the adult in charge of the child at the time. And so It is, and the only thing that brings about a resolution is that she calls the father who is white and he shows up and then everyone suddenly acts as if they have something else to do. And so I think it was just a really powerful opening scene and 
captures through the actions of the people there so much of just the social attitudes of a lot of people in America. And so I think it's really fascinating because it's fast moving and it's relatively light. Like the book feels pretty light in some ways, but it's hitting on these really important issues. And I think that Reed does such a great job of encapsulating it in a way that just shows the reader exactly how that stuff happens without spelling out everybody's attitudes. You can see the prejudice that they're bringing to the decisions that they make that lead to this escalating situation. So I just am really loving it so far. I haven't, I'm not that far into the book, but I think that's really interesting. And then I'm just now getting into the part where we're seeing Alex's story and she is an interesting character as well. <laughs> I, I feel like I cannot yet assess how I feel about her, how I feel about her. I was going to say a piece of work. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is exactly what was passing through my brain. Yep. For one thing, I think it's interesting because Amira is 26 or in her later 20s. And so she is an adult and clearly responsible. And yet she doesn't have a lot of security in her life. She's like struggling to pay for things. And so you're really seeing, I mean, that's part of why she accepted going on that Saturday was both because she wanted to help the family, but also because she wanted to get paid for these extra hours. So she is experiencing that. And then Alex is bewildering so far is all I could say basically is that she seems like she has stumbled into this social media phenomenon and she has a lot of success based on her brand that she is building, but everything feels very carefully plotted and controlled. And there's a lot of maneuvering, but the opening scene with her is that she is in a conference room and is part of a panel of speakers and is strategically making sure that she will need to breastfeed her two-year-old child during the conference. And so I think, like I said, it's hard to know at this point. I absolutely believe that women have the right to do those things and that it's absurd to think that we cannot do that in public spaces. And I personally experienced that a lot with my own children as a working parent. And so I, on the one hand, I wanted to empathize with that situation, but there's something about the calculating nature of it and the way that she's using it to her advantage that I found repulsive, even though I supported her decision to do it. And so she is an interesting character. So like I said, immediately for me as the reader, Amira's situation, I really empathize with the grocery store scene is horrific. So, I mean, she's just in such a bad situation there and yet is so composed and moves forward and just keeps on going. And so I really admire her. And then Alex, I have a much more complicated feeling toward thus far in the book. So again, that and I feel justified by my conflicted feelings based on Jen and Sarah's reactions. So yes. <laughs> so again, that's Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. And that was a bit of a rambling explanation, but it's a great book. I just think that book made me think about so many things that I take for granted. And so many, like you were saying, the motivation for certain things. There are things we believe, but why do we believe them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenging book. Yes, that opening scene really captures that as, as parents ourselves, I think you can empathize with people who see a child in a grocery store at 11 o'clock at night. I certainly have made 
my own internal judgments. I have never approached someone or gone to a security guard in that situation, but I have made some of those judgments in my mind. And so I think that she does a great job of forcing us to examine why we think those things and what it might mean to think them. And then by showing people acting on it, it helps us Mm -hmm. to examine that for ourselves, which I think is brilliant. And I mean, same with the breastfeeding. I mean, I feel like I affirm women's rights. I did feel like all of this sort of shame and judgment and that I needed to make other people comfortable instead of just taking care of my child. So I, I related to all of that, but she does a great job of exploring how those things come to pass and why, and then making us think about them. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm loving it. It's great. Good. Yeah. I really like that one too. Jen, what are you reading? So I just started this one today. It is Kim Johnson's This Is My America. And I'm doing this one as a buddy read with Book Goal Busters on Instagram. And so far, it is really powerful. It is a tough read. So the the synopsis says it's Dear Martin meets Just Mercy. And I think that's about right. So it opens with a letter from a 17-year-old named Tracy Beaumont to Innocence X which is an organization that helps people who are on death row. And we find out very quickly that Tracy's dad is on death row and he has 267 days left until his execution. She and her family know that her dad did not commit the crime, the murder that he was convicted of committing because he was with them at the time that it happened but through a series of very racially charged false witnesses and assumptions and people who thought they saw him at one time instead of another, he ended up being convicted. And she is just desperate to get this group to take up his cause. He had bad attorneys who did not push the the right things. It just one thing after another that she sees that led 10 years before to his conviction. So her, Older brother, Jamal, is a track star at their school and is has gotten a scholarship to college and is being highlighted on a local television show. And Tracy decides that she needs to bring up her dad's case when she's on there to support her brother, which causes her mom and her brother to be angry, not because they don't also want her dad to get help, but because it's supposed to be about Jamal. And so they're really frustrated. Okay, so that happens. And then before too long, she finds out that Jamal is sleeping with one of the white interns who works at this television station who has a boyfriend who is the son of a local police officer. And a couple nights later, she and Jamal have not been talking much because he's been really frustrated. He comes home late at night. He's acting really weird, but they haven't been talking. So she's not sure what's happening. And then a few minutes later, the police come to their home and they say that the girl that he is sleeping with has been murdered and that they think Jamal did it. So she is now swept up in another case where she she knows that her brother wouldn't do it, but she also knows how guilty it looks. And she understands that the fact that this girl was dating the son of the local police officer is problematic in a major way. And so it's the start of sort of this investigation. She's trying to clear her brother. There are all these things that she's learned 
from researching what happened with her dad. So she's trying to put all of this stuff that she learned from her father's case into play to help Jamal. But it is it is really heartbreaking. It, I will say it is a tough read so far. I think it's powerful. I think it's really well done. It is not a light read at all. So I am loving it, but I'm hoping things work out. But it's really, it's really hard. So it is Kim Johnson's This Is My America. I think it is doing a great job of illuminating. You know, we read Just Mercy. I think it's a, doing a great job in a YA book, a YA fiction book of illuminating some of the same issues that Brian Stevenson brings up in Just Mercy. I agree with the Nick Stone comparison. It has letters scattered throughout that she's writing to this Innocence X project. So it has that multimedia feel or multi-genre feel. But yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Like I said, I'm still really early, but it's it's, it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Wow, Jen. That, I've heard such great reviews of that one. I definitely want to read it. Yeah. I'm looking. I think it'll be great for a discussion, but... I'm sort of holding my breath to see mm-hmm. how everything turns out. I'm so. holding my breath just from your description. Like yeah. I, I feel anxious just hearing your description, you know, yeah. to know what the rest of the story is. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, should I buy that on my Kindle when we get off? <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, it just sounds very, it sounds hard, but it sounds like a really important book. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Sarah, what are you reading? I am reading a nonfiction book and it's by Rachel Held Evans. The book is called Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water and Loving the Bible Again. I'm a Christian like I've talked about before. So in my faith, the Lenten season is very important time before Easter. And I also recently started supporting on Patreon, the Bible Binge podcast, which I listened to, but I hadn't been a patron for. But I think it's important to support people who you think are putting really good stuff out in the world. And so I started supporting them and they have a faith, a, something called Faith Adjacent Book Club. And so this is the book club pick for that. This book is about Rachel's kind of struggle with her faith growing up in an, more, a predominantly evangelical neighborhood and in the deep South and how she viewed Bible stories as she was a child and then how that changed as she became young adult and then into becoming an adult and kind of questioning things. And just, it's just about her journey with her faith and reconciling what she had always known or had always been told with what she was coming to believe. And it's just, it's a very interesting, intimate portrait of how faith is a journey and what things can occur and how you can come out of them when you find yourself in doubt at some points in your faith. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm listening to the audiobook. She reads it and tragically she passed away a couple of years ago suddenly. I mean she was fairly young with so it's also kind of heart-wrenching to listen to because you know because I know that she was a young mother and so it, it has a lot of layers to it, but I think that It's a really brave book, and I'm really enjoying listening to her faith journey. So that is Rachel Held Evans, Inspired, Slaying Giants, almost said dragons, (laughs) (laughs) Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. Yeah, when she died, um, I listened to Pansy Politics, and they talked a lot about her, and she sounds like a really interesting person. I'm sure that's a great book. Well, I think now, especially, like, she does a—I mean, she— 
identifies herself as a progressive. So it's it's interesting having being a Christian and fi- and finding that there are a lot of different interpretations of what it means to be a Christian. And I am enjoying learning from, and I'm really excited to be able to discuss it. Erin Moon, who is, she's pretty active on Instagram and she's a really, I think an awesome person. She is the one that moderates the book club. So I'm really, and she is a Bible scholar. So it is, I'm really excited to see what she says and how the book club discussion goes. (laughs) Sounds great. It's great. Okay, (laughs) now we are going to get into our discussion of the Looking for Alaska book to screen adaptation. This book is a YA novel by John Green. And if you've listened for a while, you know that we love John Green so much. We were discussing before we got started with recording that with the order in which we read John Green's book and Looking for Alaska was actually my first encounter with John Green and made me fall in love with his work and made me want to read everything that he ever wrote, (laughs) which I have. So, and then Jen and Ashley, I don't know if you maybe that might be something that everybody would be interested to know. How did you first start loving John Green's work? Yeah. So I was teaching when The Fault in Our Stars came out and it was one of those books that I felt like it was important for me to read because my students were reading it. And we read it. Well, no, I think I read it on the the first time on my own. And then we read it at our school's book club, too. But I remember this is one of those that the first time I read it, I was sitting upstairs and there was a lot of snot and tears happening. (laughs) And my husband, I think he could hear me sobbing from downstairs and came to check on me. And it was one of those, oh, she's reading again and crying moments. But I absolutely love The Fault in Our Stars, which made me then go back and find all of the rest of John Green's books. So then I read all of the ones that he had published previously. And yeah, The Fault in Our Stars is still my favorite, but I do love all of his work. So how about you, Ashley? Oh, sorry, Jen. Yeah, that's okay. I was trailing off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, The Fault in Our Stars was the first for me. And I have shared before on here that for me, that was a book that I would not have read if I hadn't been pushed to read it, but I found it really cathartic and I was glad that I read it. I did wait until my life partner was asleep purposefully before reading the whole latter half of the book. And Yeah, I stayed up super late and dissolved into a puddle of tears, but all of it was very healing, actually. And so rarely do I do that to myself, but extrinsic motivation because we did have it for a book club. And then same that once I read that one and found it so powerful, I was interested in his others. I still haven't read Paper Towns, but I believe I've read all the rest of them at this point. And The Fault in Our Stars is still well above for me, but I also really love Turtles All the Way Down. And that is probably my favorite. Those two, I love them the most by a lot. And so Looking for Alaska, I really enjoyed. But I think having, I read it shortly after The Fault in Our Stars. And I think having had such an impact from The Fault in Our Stars in some ways lessened the the dramatic parts of Looking for Alaska, even though I really enjoyed them. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. the story. And I thought it was powerful, but in some ways it felt a little bit more device-like than The Fault in Our Stars did. And again, that may just be the order that I read them in. But I love all his work. And I think what he does so well is portraying people, particularly teenagers, as complex and thoughtful and complicated 
in a real way, like even when they're snarky or snide or they do obnoxious things, he just does a really great job of showing why that is within the realm of how they should be instead of making them seem flat or simple. I think a lot of times it's hard to get teenagers to show teenagers for as complex as I believe them to be as people. And I think he does that really well. Yeah. And I should say too, when I read Looking for Alaska, it was when I first switched to teaching. So it was my first, it was the first YA book I read when I started Mm -hmm. teaching. And to me, my only, you know, foray into YA was the YA that was available when I was that age in middle school. And I mean, that consisted of, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret and like Sweet Valley High. So when I read this book, that was transformative for me because I, could appreciate how John Green writes teenagers and that it's not always a happy ending. Right. And I mean, I think John Green does that very well in all of his books. I mean, it's not always going to turn out and not everything's going to be tied up. And mm-hmm. I like that he does that. Yeah. I mean, I think that is authentic to life and that's why I really appreciate him. So, yeah. All right. We're going to go through just a few categories like we've done with our other adaptations. So the first thing that we are going to address is the things we liked about the book and hope to see in the series. Jen, do you want to start us off? Sure. So (laughs) I feel like I have all these caveats. So I've not read the book for a really long time and I have watched all of this series. So I watched it on my own, I think last year. And so I will say the series for me is at the forefront of my brain. So I can't even talk about what I liked about the book and hope to see in the series because I th- I think about the series. But what I love about this story is I think that Miles is such a rich protagonist. And I think Alaska is sort of that manic pixie dream girl stereotype, but she's also more than that. And so I really like the way... She is layered. So I do think Miles in some ways objectifies her, but I also think he sees her as a real person. And so I I like the way each of these characters can connect to sort of a teen stereotype, but also there's so much more than that. And I just think I I was rewatching this pilot last evening and they're so smart in a really believable way. I teach high school kids and they are this smart. I know people sometimes challenge that they are this smart. I just kept laughing. I just think they're so funny and sometimes they're funny to be cruel and sometimes they're funny to be friendly, but they're so smart and they just, I love the way they talk to each other. I love, I love the Colonel. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk more about this. I know, but I just love the development of each of these characters. And I think you see, again, I think the pilot very quickly establishes who these kids are. So then the whole storyline can start developing. So I really, I love this series and everyone should watch all of it. So, okay, I'm going to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Ashley, what about you? So I also, this has been a long time for me for the book, but I think one thing that I remembered really well is the portrayal of Miles as a character and his desire to figure out who he is, but also uncertainty about doing it. And I really wanted to see that because in some ways it comes across that Alaska and the Colonel and Takumi have a better sense of self than Miles does. And some of that is because they've been on their own longer and that definitely precipitates them maturing at a faster rate. But I feel like 
I remember that from the book, like just his awkwardness, his uncertainty about what to do and how to do it. And I wanted to see that. And I think that so far that that plays out really well in the series. And I feel like, like Jen said, I think that we get a good sense very quickly of what each character is like. And for sure for him, you see his desire to fit in. I mean, that moment when the colonel is asking him what makes him not ordinary. And he's like, you have however many seconds to say something. And he is frantic to have something that distinguishes himself. I just think all of that is really genuine (laughs) and plays out like real life. And you want to stand up for him and be like, man, I don't have to prove anything to you, you know, but instead he is able to distinguish himself, which I think is really cool. And you're seeing him kind of get his feet on the ground. And so, yeah, that really works for me. And it was something I wanted to see. What about you, Sarah? I think in the book, John Green does this really amazing job of setting like a tone and a mood for the whole story. And I mean, you can almost feel, I mean, it's not college, but it has a college vibe to it because they're all on their own and they're doing college things that I didn't do till I was in college, but they just, it just has this mood to it. And I think that they capture, and I was hoping to see, and I'm really curious to see how they captured it in the series. And I think they did a great job with Mm -hmm. the soundtrack. And taking several really well-known songs, but doing a different arrangement to them. Like the one that sticks out is the milkshake. But but I mean, just the way they use current songs and songs that, or, or even songs from the time from 2005 when this is supposedly set, they just did a really good job of creating that whole mood and that teen angst and the just uncertainty of being in a, a new a new person in a new place. I just thought all of that, I thought the mood and tone of the show was great. And it really mirrored the way that I felt when I read the book. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the first things that stood out to me was the music was spot on. And I mean, uh-huh. clearly, you know, it was exactly from that time period. I mean, I thought all that was, and like you said, some of it was remixed and then some of it like the killers. I mean, it was like, yes. just an iconic song that was exactly from that year. And so I thought that was really effective too. Yeah, there were so many of those touches. The fact that they're listening to the Da Vinci Code on <laughs> CD in the car. Factor. Yeah. Yeah. The whole sphere factor. Oh my gosh. There's so many little touches that just the nostalgia was instantaneous. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your favorite scene or moment in this pilot. Ashley, do you want to start off? Sure. I think that the scene I found the most impactful was when Miles is taken by the boys and wrapped in the plastic and thrown in the river. First of all, it's been a long time since I read the book. So I did not, I don't remember, I don't know if that is exactly what happens in the book, but certainly I was shocked to watch it happening. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrifying. And then I'm thinking to myself, he's not going to die. He's the main character. (laughs) I know he gets out of it, but it is that moment where you're thinking, how on earth is he going to get out of it? And so I think that was really powerful, just how far the hazing could go. And then the whole part with the swan was hilarious. And so it was like, (laughs) I loved that they were able to show in that scene, both the horror of hazing that's going unchecked and the hilarity of the situation. And I think that works in that because prior, I mean, I loved all that with the swan. I loved what the Colonel said about the swan and how 
And now Miles is like, but he's so, but this one's so beautiful. And he says the dangerous ones always are. And that's what all that's great. I mean, I think symbolically it works great. I think that it also is hilarious. And as a person who has had some close encounters with swans, I think I have a very similar reaction that I used to think they were so beautiful. And then I got to know them too well. I'll spare you all that story today. But then I discovered, you know, they're just like that. And so I think it was just like, I thought it was really powerful that such a horrible scene could suddenly become so much lighter and that that moved really well. And then I loved that that was coupled with him going to check on Alaska and how cold she was to him in that moment that even with, even with him standing there in his underwear, looking helpless and absurd (laughs) that she still was so dismissive to him. And I loved how all that played out and her apology later, but also I just think that did a great job of establishing her character and how unpredictable she is as a friend. And I think all of that worked really well, but then I also just loved that. I think it showed, it's just one example that I thought worked throughout the pilot of things where you're feeling a lot of emotions in one scene. Yeah, I agree. And you know how I feel about birds. So that, that, <laughs> that scene with the swan, that is like my worst nightmare. And then again, I think it was effective because it was both terrifying and hilarious. I mean, yes. I think, yeah. I found a lot of that. I felt like mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that a lot throughout the, the pilot because I mean, there are some really terrible things happening and some really monumental in the life of a teenager things happening, but there's also these moments of just hilarity, especially with the Colonel and all of his witty comebacks and all that. So I, yeah, I really enjoyed that too. Oh my gosh. Can we just talk about how, when the Colonel says, Oh my gosh, I'm trying to find it. I wrote it down. His anger is renewable energy or something like that. His whole everything with him and his girlfriend. Again, I didn't remember those details before. And I loved every bit of that. I was here for every bit of it. And then the milk with the vodka. I mean, he was like, it's brilliant and perfect, except that it tastes like sour milk with alcohol. (laughs) I mean, I thought, yeah, all of that just worked really well. And again, did not dismiss like the seriousness of the things that they were experiencing but shed them like shed a humorous light on it. Well, when I was watching it, I kept thinking, gosh, the Colonel is walking at a very fast pace. And then all of a sudden Miles says, you walk very quickly. And he's like, I got to make up. I've got short legs or whatever. And I just thought all that, like his self-awareness for a teenager was so refreshing. I mean, he was just so self-aware of all the things. And even that he is a terrible boyfriend Mm -hmm. and that whole, all of that. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, what is your favorite scene or moment? Oh my gosh. I'm going through my list here. I'm having a really hard time choosing. So let me just acknowledge first. I think that the adults who don't appear a lot in this episode, but I think like the horrible, horribly sincere conversation where his parents are trying to warn him about STDs (laughs) in the worst ever way. And his face, his impassive face the entire time, like it's just something he has to endure. I just think there are all of these really great touches with the adults that I want to acknowledge, but that's not my official choice. (laughs) My official choice is I think we see these kids are trying to figure out who they are in a really sincere way. And I think we see that with Miles early and his 
looking at people's last words because that's supposed to be this moment of great significance. And he's trying to figure out what really matters. And he has this attachment to the idea of the great perhaps. I think the one that gets me is Alaska because she's presented early on as being so beautiful and so intelligent and so together. And yet also you can see from that opening scene at her house that she is in some way broken. So that scene where Alaska comes out into their hideout with Miles and she brings the book about Bolivar. And the, the quote is, how will I ever get out of this labyrinth? And she wants to know if the labyrinth is life or death. The acting, I will just say throughout the series, is phenomenal. And I think she does such a good job of portraying there her vulnerability, even though she covers it up very quickly. And you see Miles is just totally drawn into her charisma. And he's so infatuated with her so quickly. And he can't yet get past that to see her vulnerability. I just think that whole scene is so moving, especially because we know from the very big, yeah, we don't, if you haven't read the book, you don't know, but if you've read the book, you know, from the beginning, what's going to happen. And so I think it's just really sad. And again, there are so many funny moments in the episode, but that balance of happiness and sadness is really powerfully done. I think. Sarah, what was your favorite scene or moment? Well, I, there's, I really, really thought this was a strong pilot And I thought it stayed true to the essence of the book. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite scenes was a moment of lightness with Alaska when she goes to purchase the alcohol and the way that she basically outsmarts the store clerk with her intelligent banter. And also the fact that she calls she talks about the strawberry Hill Rose because I also, that is the first thing a sip of alcohol I ever had was strawberry hill rosé and so I just thought that all that nostalgia and I mean really like in the early 2000s in the late 90s that's what all the high school kids would drink would be we call it Boone's Farm but I mean it's that same like sweet wine and that she was able to basically buy a case of it with when she clearly looked like a high school student, but then because she was able to talk and basically outsmart the cashier, I just thought that was really, I thought that was really the first time you really could see all of this charisma she used and how she was able to use her intellect and her, and I mean, she's a beautiful girl, able to use all that to kind of wield power over this guy at the, the liquor store. So I thought that was a, good introduction into who Alaska is in terms of her ability. I mean, she can be manipulative and, and it gives some foreshadowing into like what will occur as the series progresses. So I thought that was a good scene and I, I don't know like that I enjoyed it, but I just thought it was a notable scene, I should say. I also really like the end scene with them dancing and smoking and, you know, just being kids at under the bridge and their little smoking corner. I just, I like always like that. And anything set to music that makes me feel the things, I like that too. But yeah, I loved that. Well, I loved Alaska's, I think we see in that moment with the alcohol. And also there are a lot of times where she knows how to use her body for power. And yet she, for all of her proclamations about being a feminist, she doesn't own her body in a lot of ways. And I think that, and I think that that's 
not just true of her, but I think that there are a lot of young women who that is their experience, that they know how to use their attractiveness and their body as a way to wield power. But it also is bringing them hardship and often brings hardship to their relationships. And I think like all of that is just really rich. When she does that whole thing where she grabs Miles's hand, it is hilarious. But it's also like she knows she is very smart and she is very aware of what she is doing when she takes his hand and puts it on her breast. So it's hilarious, but also that's what she knows to do to have power in her in her social situations and in the world. And I just think all of that shows the vulnerability that she's trying so hard to hide to the viewer. And I think that works really well. And then I wanted to say, Sarah, about the end, that I not only loved that scene, but I also loved where he called his parents. I thought that was really sweet and touching that he, I think before that moment, we've seen his parents as being somewhat cringeworthy and relatively protective of him, certainly relative to every other character that we're seeing and awkward. I mean, all those things. And in that moment, we see them in a new light, I think. And his his parents design, I mean, they're still really awkward. I mean, she's like yelling to, to his dad <laughs> each thing that he says, which is hilarious. But she also is so hopeful that he will find the great perhaps that he's looking for. And I loved that. I loved that we saw in that moment both that he wanted to affirm for them that it was the right choice and also that they really wanted it to be the right choice for him. I thought, oh, that was really great. I agree. I thought this was a very strong pilot. I did too. I could tell my my life partner was getting sucked in, which is definitely a sign that it's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Mine was too. I was watching it. Yeah. I started it without him because I didn't think he would want to watch it. And then I could tell that he, it got his attention, which I'm glad because I want to watch the rest. So I think it's. Yeah. I will say since I've watched the whole, it is so, it only gets better. So I think it is such a strong pilot. And I think the series just continues to build on all of this foundation that it has laid so well in this opening episode. And I just think you see some secondary characters really, they develop with a lot of nuance. And I think they add to it from the book, from what I remember, I think they add to the characterization that's there. Some of the characters who aren't in the book a lot get bigger roles here. And yeah, oh, I can't wait to hear what y'all think about the rest. (laughs) Well, we hope that you all will watch the pilot and then come and let us know what you think and let us know if you've read the book, how you feel about John Green and his work. We would love to discuss all of that with you. So make sure that you get on social media. We're at Unabridged Pod everywhere and just let us know what you think. Before we end, we are going to do our Give Me One. (laughs) Today we have a fitness uh, category and today is cardio or weights. Which one do you prefer? Ashley? Can you give <laughs> Sure. I generally prefer cardio. I did, like when I, I have had parts of my life where I was in a routine to go to a gym and had a set weight routine. And I really like doing that with free weights, but I find that they're harder to dip in and out of than the cardio is. And these days I'm dipping in and out of fitness at best. Often I'm just dipping out of it, which is sad, but also the reality. But I do think I probably prefer cardio. These days though, most of the time I'm doing yoga. So that, you know, it's kind of the in-between. I'm not really doing either, but it's working for me because it does have some strength training, but it's something that I can do 
without loading up on equipment or needing to leave the house. So how about you, Jen? I had a brief time in my life when I had a weight routine and it ended and I have never gone back. And so cardio, yeah, I try to get some cardio. I am not the most fit person and I do not enjoy exercise. So that's why I'm always posting on Instagram about my treadmill show because I need TV to give me motivation to do anything. I like to walk outside, but as far as dedicated exercising, yeah, cardio is all I've got right now sometimes. (laughs) Sarah, how about you? Well, I love both, but I, I can't go without cardio because I like to get sweaty and sometimes it's hard to do that get as sweaty as I want to get with weights. You know, I, I like to get my heart rate up, but I really do enjoy lifting weights and I do both, but I can, I do want to say that I have really started. I've talked about this, but I'm still, I'm going to preach it. I have really loved walking. I have always thought walking was wimpy and I feel really bad that I thought that, but I like that has been one of my saving graces through 2021 and in through 2020 and into 2021. So I, I walk every day and I have a dog, so she needs to be walked and she loves it. Yeah. And I'm with you on that, Sarah, that I am sorry to say that I always had a really negative attitude toward it. And same, I don't know why it's great exercise and it doesn't, I don't have to worry about injury in the same way that I do with my routine, like with running routines Mm -hmm. where I've been much more susceptible to getting injuries and then having setbacks. And yeah, I think it's good to celebrate walking. Yeah, I agree. And it's great for mental health and you get outside. So I have become a walking convert. (laughs) (laughs) We would love for you to discuss this adaptation with us or just discuss John Green's work in general. Make sure you find us on social media and we will discuss all the things. Thank you for listening today. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UnderbridgePod or on the web at UnderbridgePod.com for a list of ways to support us. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light, and Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged.